This is the Ed Milet Show. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Well, today's going to be special because I don't have a lot of people on twice. And Max Lugavere is going to be here for the second time today. So you already know who my guest is. But the reason I want him to come back on is because I think the topic is so profound. We're going to talk about eating today. I'm talking about nutrition, your body, cooking your food correctly. He's got a brand new book out now coming out called Genius Kitchen, which is, I'd say it's like half cookbook, half nutritional guide. I think to call it a cookbook is not in the totality of really what the book represents. And it's incredible. And he's one of a kind. He's just the best in the world at what he does. So Max, welcome back, brother. Ed, so good to be here, my man. <laughs> so good to have you, brother. I, I love everything about you. I love what Thank you represent. You. You're just, yeah, so special. Such a special human. Thank you, brother. The feelings are mutual, as you know. And uh, I'd always do anything for you to help you. And why is because you help so many other people. So I want to start with the book. But just for the audience who might not have heard the first show, I just think people that are great at anything in life have a bigger reason to do it oftentimes. And your whole reason for being in this space in general about helping people with their their wellness it comes from your mom, Kathy, right? So just update the audience if they don't know or update the ones that do know and share with everybody that doesn't know where your passion comes from. Yeah, so I, um, I began my career as a journalist uh, and I did that for six years straight out of college. Um, and my... The topics that I covered were across the board. They were, you know, I was, I was a generalist. But as I approached my late 20s, in my personal life, my mother, who's the person who I've always been the closest to out of yeah. anybody in the world, started to show the earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a, as a rare form of dementia. Mm. She had a, a condition called Lewy body dementia, which to, for anybody who's, who's not familiar with it, it feels like having Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease at the same time. <sighs> It's a neurodegenerative condition that affects movement. It affects your cog- cognition. And I had no prior family history of any, any kind of neurodegenerative dementia. And so what it did for me was it was a call to action to, I mean, A, be there for my mom and go with mm-hmm. her to doctor's offices to try to come to some kind of understanding of what it was that she was suffering from, but also to try to figure out, to the best of my ability, what could be done to help her. And in tandem with that, because I... I recognize that I had this newly discovered risk factor, right? A family history now for the first time. What could be done to prevent this from ever happening to me and others that I care about? Mm. So that journey began about 10 years ago and it's going to continue until the day I die. I mean, my mother's life was incredibly tragic, but uh, all the work that I'm sharing and putting out really is so that what she went through, what my family went through wasn't in vain. Yeah. And you're the best at it. And the thing is, is, by the way, is get an unbelievably successful podcast as well. Well, I was thinking about you. I was driving out here this morning. This concept of genius that you're always talking about. And now the new book, Genius Kitchen. It's interesting. Your even your mother's tragedy unlocked a genius in you that you never even knew you possessed. Mm. It's nothing you'd ever say. Yeah. But it's become your real genius now. Is the space that you find yourself in. So. I'm really excited to share all this stuff. There, really stupid thing to start out with. My stomach's growling. You're like, <laughs> I'm going to tell you why your stomach's growling. There's a mechanism in there. So, there is. So, why is my stomach growling? There what does is. It mean? It's super interesting. You know, oftentimes <laughs> when our stomach growls, we think it's because we're hungry, right? And in part, we it's probably time for us to eat when our stomach gives us that that okay. indication. But the reason why the stomach is growling, it's owed to a system in our GI tract called the migrating motor complex. Okay. And the migrating motor complex, it's like this completely underappreciated mechanism that gets going after about 90 minutes of not eating. So after about 90 minutes of not eating, we feel like we're giving our digestive system a rest, but actually that's when this process kicks up. And what it does is it sweeps debris, dead bacteria, 
food particles that haven't been fully digested. Mm. It sloughs off dead epithelial cells from the stomach down all the way past the small intestine to the large intestine. So it's, a, it's, a, it's essentially called a housekeeping weight. Okay. It can help prevent SIBO, which is small intestinal, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which a lot of people suffer from. So people that have like GI issues when yeah. they eat, they, you know, they'll have like from, from otherwise benign foods, feelings like indigestion, gas, bloating, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's because we are constantly subverting this housekeeping weight, which is so essential to our di- digestive well-being, mm-hmm. by eating constantly throughout the day. So the fact that your stomach is growling means that your housekeeping wave is functioning, mm-hmm. cleaning the small intestine, and, and keeping your digestive system healthy, essentially. Eating throughout the day. So before we get into the book, by the way, what's great about the book is that it's, it's not only the nutritional guy, but you also like rank things too on like, the terminology that you use is like, like like okay good best better, better yeah, right yeah, better yeah. right like and i like that as well because it kind of gives a rank i love to rank things i always know if my friends like one to ten how much do you like this guy you know yeah one to ten how good was that song so you rank things in the book but i want to ask you first like a really basic thing overall if you walked into my kitchen or an average person's kitchen right now before we get into detailed stuff what would you tell them to throw what would you probably go look for and throw out of their kitchen immediately is there oh, something man. in there Good, good question. Um, I, you know, what I find to be, I used to be a lot more dogmatic about um, like macros and, and, you know, carbs, fats and things like that. I think that my perspective, especially with Genius Kitchen, I'm, I, I really think that the major problem with the standard American diet and at the root cause of all of the modern ills that we're seeing burdening society from obesity, overweight, cardi- the increasing rates of cardiovascular disease, autoimmunity really stem back to our overconsumption of ultra-processed foods. Yeah. These are the foods that are packaged, they're shelf-stable, minimally satiating, and highly calorie-dense. These are the foods that, that under, really underlie the obesity epidemic. Now, you can take the most obvious offenders like sugar-sweetened beverages, which are purported to be the cause of about 200,000 deaths annually worldwide just from sugar-sweetened beverages alone. That's how toxic they are. Mm. I mean, once one or, you know, the occasional indulgence in mm-hmm. your favorite sugar sweetened soda, not mm-hmm. the end of the world. But the problem with foods that contain added sugar and sugar sweetened beverages are really at the epicenter of this problem because they're so easily consumed is that we have no biological requirement for sugar and it's not satiating mm. at all and provides no nutritional value. So you could basically eat all of the calories that you require in a day, get all of the nutritional, um, uh, you know, all of the nutrients that you need and then throw 200 calories of high fructose corn syrup soft drink on top of that and that really is what people are doing and that's why we're seeing you know this this just crazy rates of ever of our expanding waistlines and the like well the thing about not being full you and i talked about last time a lot that's my layman's version of it right is something i had not really thought about before that when i'm eating these processed foods that although i intake the same amount of calories say as a handful of nuts or something like yeah. that i'm not satiated i'm still hungry when i'm done right yeah. so when you say just curious when you say sugar sweetened um, drinks like that. Are you talking about all of them, even the artificially flavored ones, anything at all that's any kind of basic carbonated drink that we're finding yeah. at any grocery store? Well, you don't want to, you definitely don't want to drink your calories, but the sugar sweetened beverages, I think, are, are the worst. And that's because there's zero, there's, it has zero capacity to satiate your, okay. your, your hunger. So you could drink, I mean, look at the size of soda of, of mm-hmm. like beverages at fast food joints these days. I mean, they're Massive. getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's yes. because we just don't tire of drinking these, drinking these products. Okay. Um, I'm not that worried about um, artificial sweeteners, although my personal preference is to go for more natural sweeteners, uh, you know, erythritol, stevia, monk fruit, and things like that. But you do you, like stevia. 
Yeah, stevia, I'm okay with. I mean, it, it has an aftertaste, which isn't ideal. But you mentioned satiety, which is really important, I think, to unpack for people. The, the three characteristics of a food that make a food satiating, that make it fill you up mm-hmm. so that you get that gratifying feeling of fullness after eating it, is water, protein, and fiber. So those are the three things that you want to look out for in any food mm-hmm. if you want to avoid over-consuming mm-hmm. that food. Water makes a food satiating because if you think about it, for a hunter-gatherer, one of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, when water ceased to be available, where would the next best place that a hunter-gatherer would look for for hydration? Food. Food, food is full of water, right? Mm-hmm. Fresh produce, mm-hmm. even meat is a good source of water. Yep. So if you're dehydrated, you're likely going to eat more. Mm-hmm. So that's why water should be one of the first places that you look to. The second thing is fiber. Fiber, we have no biological necessity for it. Um, it does make life better. Fiber consumption is associated with longevity. Can I ask one thing on that? Yeah. Don't you talk about in the book, though, that it actually has some LDL particle removal capacity? It does, yeah, right, especially right. viscous gel-forming fibers, in particular psyllium husk. So a lot of people take psyllium husk for regularity, but there's like this amazing side benefit of psyllium husk, and that is that it traps LDL particles in the form of bile acids in the gut. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these like really easy interventions that can have a, a, a small but significant effect on your lipid on your mm. lipid profile. It can also trap excess levels of um, hormones like estrogen, which is one of the reasons why fiber consumption seems to be associated with reduced risk of breast cancer, which is one of these hormone-sensitive um, cancers. So fiber is, is really incredible. It seems to do all these amazing things. We don't, it's not an essential nutrient. You, know, you mm-hmm. see a lot of these like, people on the carnivore diet thriving with seemingly zero fiber intake. Right. Um, and fiber, of course, it's also a... A surrogate, you know, dietary fiber intake is probably also like a surrogate marker for just an overall healthy dietary pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're eating a lot of fiber, you're not the typical person consuming the standard American diet, right? Yeah. You're eating probably set more salads, more veggies, and things like that. Um, but fiber is satiating because it mechanically it absor- absor- absorbs water and stretches out the stomach, turning off the hunger hormone ghrelin. Mm-hmm. So that's the, second, that's the second aspect of food that you want to make sure that you're seeking out in order to be satiated. That's big. And then the third thing I would say is protein. Protein is the most satiating macronutrient, more so than carbs, more so than fat. And if you look at ultra-processed foods, they tend to be deficient in all three of those things. Okay. Right? Ultra-processed foods tend to be some combination of carbs and fat, or both. Mm -hmm. Usually sodium, wheat flour, stuff like that, um, tend to be very protein deficient. Uh, Also, protein is the most expensive macronutrient. So it's another reason why these high-margin junk foods, right? They, they all tend to be... They lack it because it's too much to put in there, you're saying? Yeah, it's too... It's an expensive... Are we too... So, protein, let's stay on that topic for a minute. You're going right down all my questions I wanted to ask you. By the way, no. here's... It's another one of these interviews, everybody, where you get to listen in on stuff I want to know, and <laughs> it's to your benefit too, right? So, because you don't get a lot of guys like Max in front of you very often. So, protein is like, obviously, you know, you know that I've lifted weights all my life, and everyone knows... Protein, protein, protein. Are we overly obsessed? So I've, are we overly obsessed with protein intake? In, in other words, have we gone so far? Like I, you know, I try to eat my body weight and protein every single day. So I weigh a couple hundred pounds. I'm trying to get about 200. For me, though, I do supplement different things to get to that 200. So what you said, protein so critical. Yeah. But is, it, are, is, there, is there a tendency to be overly obsessed with getting so much protein or you can't get enough of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can get enough of it, but that that is it's it's actually self-regulated. So you really don't have to think about getting too much of it because it's so satiating. I mean, nobody has ever gorged on lean chicken breast, which is one of the most protein-dense foods there is, okay. because it's so satiating. We have these innate hunger mechanisms 
in our mouths, in our, on our tongues, in our digestive tracts that know it once we've had enough protein. But we do know that the RDA for protein is insufficient for good health, especially for people like you and like mm -hmm. me who, who are active and who exercise regularly. Mm -hmm. In fact, the research suggests that we need to consume about double what the RDA is. So the RDA is 0.8 uh, grams per kilogram of body weight um, okay. every day of protein. We don't use kilograms here in mm -hmm. But US, everywhere else does, though. But everywhere yeah. else, yeah. So, I mean, I'll break it down in, in terms of pounds. But essentially, um, we need double that. So the, the research suggests that if we want to optimize our time spent in the gym, which we all should, right? We work hard for, our, mm -hmm. for the gains, right? Mm-hmm. You should be striving for, for 1.6 uh, grams per kilogram of lean mass or goal weight. And so that's an important distinction. Um, and that breaks down to, in terms of pounds, point, about 0.7 grams per pound of lean mass or goal weight. Okay. And the idea there is you're lean. Mm -hmm. So for you, 0.7 to a whole gram per pound of your body weight, mm -hmm. that's sufficient. You're, like, mm -hmm. you're definitely doing the right thing there. But if you had, say, you know, if you had... Um, 50 pounds of fat mass on you that you wanted to lose, then I would do 0.7 to 1 times what your weight would be minus 50. Okay. Do you consider protein supplements as processed foods? Are those all processed? That's a really good question. I actually don't. I think protein, um, protein supplements are great. I personally take them. Good. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's easy to meet your protein goals with protein shakes and also whey protein in particular has yeah. been shown to support immune function, yeah. which I think is like this nice, happy added side benefit. It's interesting because when you read Max's book, you would think, because we're talking a lot about plants here in a minute, but there's a lot of meat in there too. And, and the way to prepare it. And by the way, he actually has avoid all the way up to best in, in terms of foods or ways to prepare them as well in the book. The rankings are, there's some avoid in there. So I'm learning about sulforaphane. Can I say that correctly? Yeah, sulforaphane. Okay, so t talk to us about like having these defense mechanisms in our bodies that we need as well. So go plants and sulforaphane a little bit. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So plants, like animals, they don't, they don't appreciate necessarily being eaten, right? Plants have an have a innate drive to survive as well, but plants can't fight off predators. So what they do is they become chemists. And they create compounds this is that, fascinating right here. Yeah, they create <clears throat> antifeedant compounds, basically, mm -hmm. that would make smaller animals, mice, insects, even fungus, um, that, that serve as toxins to those smaller um, organisms. This is fascinating. Yeah. And, and we can see this, actually, by sulforaphane is a perfect illustration of this, because sulforaphane, even though it's one of the most powerful um, putative cancer fighters, neuroprotectant, cardioprotective compounds in cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts, sulforaphane isn't actually in those plants until the cells of the plants get crushed and chewed up. You're kidding me. Yeah. Okay. You won't find, if you take a raw piece of broccoli, there's no sulforaphane in it. There are two compounds. Wow. One is called glucoraphanin, and the other is called myrosinase. You don't have to remember this, but they're basically, they're, these are two compounds held in completely different cellular compartments. And when they unite, which only happens when you chew on the plant. That's incredible. When a critter chews on the plant, you create this sulforaphane compound, which is That's essentially a pesticide. It's a toxin. It's a toxin. It's, yeah. a, it's a toxic pesticide that the plant creates itself. Gosh, that's yeah, amazing. To protect itself from predation. But the, the reason why these compounds are beneficial in us, we're obviously we're much more robust than a mouse or an insect, right? Yeah. And for many toxins, it's like the dose makes the poison. 
Okay. For uh, an insect, the dose of sulforaphane that, may, that may, they may be getting is going to be a much higher and more toxic dose relative to its body size. Okay. In us, eating sulforaphane, especially at the dose contained when we, at the dose ingested when we chew cruciferous vegetables, is so small, but it still has a protective effect. And this protective effect is owed to a mechanism called hormesis. Yep. And hormesis is basically the term given to when small doses of a certain stressor, even a certain toxin, actually helps to facilitate robustness in the organism. And it's the mechanism by which exercise works. Humans yeah. in general. Right? Yeah, right. humans in general. The right. way we develop grit. Like, right. I mean, you talk about this on your podcast all the time. Yeah. And so we essentially get this form of, we, we ingest and we derive this form of chemical stress from compounds like sulforaphane, polyphenols. The plant kingdom is just like loaded with these compounds. Bro, that blows my way. So you've all known you should eat more plants, right? Or veggies, rather. But in this case, are you hearing this? How much nature has constructed this to our benefit? That's mind-blowing that it only materializes when chewed, when they, or they're combined. And then they have this benefit. By the way, hormesis, I had David Sinclair on the show, who's like, I think you know Dr. Sinclair from Harvard, but he's like the number one longevity dude in the world. And the whole philosophy of his work is based on the concept of hormesis. Yeah. When you do cold plunges or exercise or things like that in the body, you're saying there's a mechanism that, that strives inside our own bodies when these toxins kick in. Absolutely. It, That's it, a mind-blowing. It beautifully illustrates, I think, the symbiosis of, of all living things in the sense that you take a plant that's been stressed. Unreal. Right? And it imparts, <clears throat> it develops a vigor, right? Like mm. a stressed plant, like a wild plant. It's got to be scrappy, right? Like mm. out there in the world. And when you eat it, it imparts that vigor unto you. It's like this beautiful circle of life. That's bananas to me. No pun intended. <laughs> um, you said fungus earlier. There's this big thing in the book on fungi, right? Like, yeah. So I am, don't like the taste of like mushrooms and stuff like that. So, That's okay. So talk to us a little bit about fungi and why it's good stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there, first of all, there, have you, I mean, there are lots of different mushrooms and they all have different flavors. Nah, so. I probably haven't sampled very many. <laughs> <laughs> there is, um, have you tried lion's mane? Have you ever had fresh lion's mane? No. So a lot of people are talking about lion's mane these days because you can find it in various supplements. But now you're starting to see fresh lion's mane pop up at different supermarkets. Okay. And it has the taste and texture of fresh crab. I'm not even kidding you. It's like, it's really delicious. Okay. I will try that then. Yeah. You saute it in a little olive oil, maybe some grass-fed butter, salt, pepper. It mm. is so damn good. Mm. And the beautiful okay. thing about mushrooms is that very um, nutrient-dense and low-calorie. So you're not getting a lot of calories from mushrooms, mm. but you're getting a lot of really interesting compounds like beta-glucans, which mm. can support immune function. Certain mushrooms have different, uh, you know, different micronutrient profiles. Some have vitamin D, depending on where they grow. Um, some mushrooms actually create really powerful detoxifying compounds like glutathione. Glutathione is considered the mother of all antioxidants. And certain mushrooms like the porcini mushroom in particular, very concentrated in glutathione, which is great. And one tip, so as you mentioned, the uh, Genius Kitchen, which is one of the reasons why I'm so proud of it, it's not just a cookbook. It's for people to learn actually how to cook, Yes, which I thought was so important. And one of the, I think, biggest mistakes that people make if, they, if they're listening to this and they say, well, I don't like mushrooms, I've never had mushrooms that I've liked, one of the biggest, most common mistakes that people make when cooking mushrooms is they rinse them. You never want to add water to mushrooms because mushrooms are already packed with water. All you want to do when you buy mushrooms is brush off any visible dirt that you see, hmm. but you never want to rinse them, unlike other produce. You just want to throw them in a hot pan with some like, 
cooking oil, some great oil, like extra virgin olive oil, butter. Is it because once you're cooking them, whatever the gnarly stuff that could be potentially on there by washing is gone by cooking it, or there's nothing on there? Yeah, I mean, you, you neutralize, you know, any any potential harm that would come from eating something raw, but it's also that mushrooms are like sponges for water, and what you're, what you're, the aim when you cook a mushroom is to get the water out of it so that Got the it. mushroom's natural flavor comes through. Do you, do you look at food like it's actually medicine? I do. You know, I think that I like to say there's a lot of there are a lot of people in the functional medicine community that like to say that food is medicine. I like to refine that a little bit and add a little bit of nuance. I think that food is definitely a form of medicine. Mm -hmm. I think it's certainly a form of preventative medicine. Um, It can be used to help prevent conditions like obesity, overweight, um, type two diabetes. That's uncontrovertible fact at this point. Do I think that it can treat every disease? Not necessarily. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not anti-medicine or anything like that. I think mm-hmm. that actual medicine has a place, but I think that food also has a place. And I think that we need to not be so dichotomous in our thinking. You know, I think that there's a place for both. So I think that food is medicine. I think exercise is medicine. I think sleep is medicine. I think hydration is medicine. Yeah, I don't understand why more people aren't conscious of this topic. So there's all this stuff now on supplementation. Everyone's on different supplements, right? And this is why I'm so excited about your book and you working out. Everyone kind of knows you're supposed to do it now. Everyone's heard a podcast on meditation. I think most people know they should drink more water. But for some reason, food itself is really still an under-discussed topic, like in, in general. And for me, one of the things from your work, like I already ate a lot of meat. Like I've added so much more, um, so many more vegetables, green vegetables to my diet than I had before after you and I talked for the first time. And one of the things that's really improved for me is my digestion. Hmm. What don't most people know or understand about digestion that they should hmm. in their lives? Such a good question. Well, I think people don't realize, most people don't realize that digestion begins before you take your first bite. It, it begins actually, there's called the cephalic phase of digestion. So digestion begins when you're observing the food that you're about to eat and smelling the food. One of the reasons why I think it's so important for people to be seated and to relax and to take a deep breath um, and to just calm their nervous systems before they begin their meal, because our stomachs begin to pump out, pump out hydrochloric acid, protein digesting enzymes, enzymes like um, pepsin. Mm. All before we even take that that first bite. Did not know that. By biting and chewing slowly, um, chewing slowly is crucially important. So we already talked about uh, sulforaphane. Mm. If you're rapidly chewing your cruciferous vegetables, you need time for those for those enzymatic reactions to occur. So the mm. the, the creation of that co- of that compound sulforaphane, which activates detox pathways in the body, it's a cardioprotective, <laughs> neuroprotective compound. But it needs time to be created. The same thing with um, alliums like garlic and onions. There's a compound created when we crush garlic, fresh garlic in particular, called allicin. It's an antimicrobial compound, anti-inflammatory. We need to chew slowly because that's where, that's where the digestion and the, and the synthesis of many of the most valuable compounds in our food wow. begin to be created in our mouths. Also, wow. this is one of the things that I talk a lot about in Genius Kitchen as well. Some of our most... Uh, Beneficial produce like beets and arugula are very high in compounds called nitrates. Mm-hmm. Nitrates are really good for our cardiovascular health because the end product, nitric oxide, in our in our cardiovascular system, basically brings down blood pressure. It supports blood flow. It's a vasodilator, mm-hmm. vasodilating gas that we all create in our in our 
blood vessels, also really important for sexual function. I was going to say, guys, it's yeah, a biggie. guys, yeah, nitric <laughs> oxide is super, super important. And the nitrates that are found in foods like beets, a lot of people will take like beetroot supplement, right, to boost mm-hmm. blood flow. But we humans don't actually have the enzyme to convert nitrates in food to nitrite, which then gets funneled into that nitric oxide pathway. It's the oral bacteria in our mouths Crazy. that reduce nitrate to nitrite, which then can boost nitric oxide in our blood vessels. So for your oral bacteria to have the time to be able to do that, yeah. you need to chew your food slowly. Man. So if you're wolfing down a salad that has arugula in it, that has beets, and you're not taking the time to chew what it is that you're eating more slowly, Shoot. you're undermining the capacity of your food to be cardioprotective. And in tandem with that, it's another, it's another reason, and I, I don't know why I felt the need to mention this in the book, but, um, but I felt it was like really apropos. It's one of the reasons why people should definitely not use antiseptic mouthwash every day, because what you're doing with antiseptic mouthwash is you're nuking the bacteria in your mouth that, that basically reduce nitrate to nitrite, which then can actually, they've, even a, 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 an acute swishing of antiseptic mouthwash, antiseptic being the key here, can increase your blood pressure because it, it basically messes up that nitric oxide pathway. They've also shown that wow, rinsing with mouthwash after exercise can reduce the blood pressure lowering effects of exercise. And people who regularly use mouthwash two times or more per day, and this is about 40% of the population, have 50% increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes because nitric oxide is also involved mm. in insulin signaling, and they have double the risk of developing hypertension. Okay, brother. Okay, I gotta start chewing my food slower. And Chew I your food. My and yeah. I do you antiseptic mouthwash. So, is there any? Um, I have so many things to ask you. By the way, I told you guys you never heard a show like this before. <laughs> so you're gonna write down stuff down and learn stuff. Is there any downside? Because we're gonna talk about some other stuff here in a minute, and then some of the stuff in the book on preparation is just awesome. However, is there any downside to eating a plant based or too many plants or anything like that that we can you overdo that or is there no downside yeah i love this question um i think there is i don't i don't prescribe a one-size-fits-all diet it's right. people people have different tolerances for fiber quantity for various compounds in food you know i have a friend who if he goes within six feet of an allium which is like garlic mm-hmm. onions leeks he gets the worst digestive discomfort ever um so everybody's different um and I also think that there's this push, especially from the vegan community, to just eat as much fiber as possible. Yes. We know that fiber is beneficial, but if you, from one day to the next, start eating, if you go from what is typical, which is 15 grams of fiber per day, which is pretty low, I'll admit, to the, the goal that some people espouse of being 150 grams a day of dietary fiber, you're just setting yourself up for constipation, for all kinds of digestive I was going to ask you, do you need to drink more water if you're going to take in that kind of fiber? You just need to, you need to go slowly. And you okay. need, because essentially what it is, is you're, you need to cultivate the, the microbiome, essentially, yep. the gut microbiome, the gut flora to be able to assimilate all of that fiber. Okay. Because fiber, I mean, the thing about fiber, we don't absorb it. Fiber is fiber because it passes through the small intestine undigested, and it mm. becomes a fermentable substrate for the 30 trillion bacteria that live in the colon, mm. in the large intestine. But you need to cultivate that bacterial community first. The bacteria of the person listening to this compared to somebody in, you know, in the Hazda tribe, for example, mm-hmm. or an Inuit, we all have these different you know, microbial constitutions. And, um, and some of that's like cultural and, and by it's over time it's materialized. It's, this may seem basic, but this is true, correct? That's why if some guy from American goes to 
Mexico on vacation for a long time, the, the foods or the waters there affect their digestion differently than somebody who grew up there, yeah, correctly? Yeah. Right, because you don't have the same immune system, you don't have the same antibodies, you don't have the same gut flora. Okay. I mean, the gut is where the majority of our immune system is, is stationed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the gut plays a huge role in, in immune function. What about fish? So you say in the book, know your fish. Know like, your fish, yeah, yeah. What's the deal with that? Why? Well, fish is, is really important, especially from the standpoint of brain health, which is, you know, my... my it's probably, your go zone. Yeah, yeah, my number one passion. Um, fish is medicine when it comes to the brain. We okay. have the most robu- robust body of evidence that the compounds in fish, whether it's the omega-3 fatty acids, preformed, plug-and-play, ready-to-go for your brain, or protective antioxidants like astaxanthin, um, all really, really beneficial from a brain health standpoint. There have been studies that have shown us that one to two servings of fish per week can help prevent um, dementia in people genetically at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Prevent dementia one to two times a week. Is there a particular type of fish that you would recommend over another one? Yeah, I would definitely recommend the wild fatty fish. So salmon Salmon. is is a great option. Sardines also a good option. I mean, whenever they look at this is how epidemiology works. They look at the population level and they say, who's eating fish, who isn't? And the people who eat fish, regardless of what kind of fish it is, tend to do better. Right. You know, so we can't be snobs about this, right? That's why in my book, actually, that's why I have good, better, best. Mm. Because to me, like, if all you're able to access is canned tuna, mm. right? If like that's all, if you live in a food desert and that's the only kind of fish that you have access to, that's still better than not eating fish. Okay. Ideally, you want, you know, to, to opt more frequently for a fatty fish like salmon because it's going to be higher in those omega-3 fatty acids mm. um, and wild is preferred over farmed but any any kind of fish is is beneficial from the standpoint of the brain fish is also great in minerals like selenium like vitamin d see guys i gotta tell you like uh, i did not eat almost any and then and actually when you and i talked the first time and then reading the book i'm like i gotta i gotta eat more salmon i just don't make these choices the other thing about the book I think it separates it from anything else too, is actually the preparation parts of it. Mm. So you talk in the book, I want to go through some things about just stuff that's got flavor that you recommend. And I want to give the whole book away because I want everybody to go get the book, which you need to go get the book. Here's why you should go get the book. There's not another one in its category like it. In other words, if you want to go get a book on intermittent fasting, there are multiple books on that topic you could go get, all of which are probably pretty good, right? But this topic of the preparation of the food and the way that he talks about eating like a genius, I just don't think there's another one like it. So that's my endorsement, number one. Thank you. But the idea of like, so extra extra virgin olive oil is in the book. Yes. Okay. To talk about it. Like one, it tastes good. But number one, why is that something that we should be considering using? And you give recipes and stuff in there in preparation of our food. Oh, I even have an extra virgin olive oil cake, a grain-free, gluten-free extra virgin olive oil cake in the book with no sugar added, by the way. Um, I love extra virgin olive oil. It's, uh, it's one of these foods that just for years I've been obsessed with. And humans have been pressing olives to make extra virgin olive oil for thousands of years at this point. It's, it's, it almost is a perfect food. And especially when you compare wow. it to these, gra- these grain and seed cooking oils that are so heavily marketed, dirt cheap to produce, high profit margins toxic to the bodies in the, really? in the, in the, to our bodies and the quantity that we're consuming them today. Extra virgin olive oil has super heart healthy monounsaturated fat, which is the best fat to consume liberally. It's actually a kind of fat called oleic acid, mm-hmm. which is the most abundant fat found in nature. Breast milk is rich in oleic acid. Beef has very high in oleic acid. So is wild salmon. But oleic acid, olea, is actually, it means olive. So we discovered this fat in olive oil. Mm centuries ago. Hmm. And 
And now we know how beneficial it is. It actually, it helps prevent inflammation. It helps make our um, LDL lipoprotein particles more resistant to oxidation mm. and more resistant to adhesion to macrophages, which is where this sort of like atherosclerotic process begins. Mm -hmm. So it's a really healthy fat from the cardiovascular standpoint and um, brain health relies on cardiovascular health. So it's mm -hmm. the primary oil that I use in my cooking um, and that I recommend using as a sauce. And you can cook with it. A lot of people don't, don't realize that. There's a lot of misconceptions about that. Mm -hmm. But the other thing about extra virgin olive oil is aside from the fact that it's a very healthy fat, it's got a superpower that no other fat has. And it's that it contains a compound called oleocanthal, which is essentially an anti-inflammatory compound that mm. is as anti-inflammatory as low-dose ibuprofen. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So over-the-counter pain-relieving medications that are anti-inflammatory, they have side effects. Actually, chronic use of uh, ibuprofen is associated with cardiovascular events. But extra virgin olive oil, you're getting all of the, all of the benefit, all of the, the anti-inflammatory effect, essentially, of a, of a low dose of that, but without any of the negative side effects. You're kidding me. And by the way, none of the taxing on your kidneys or liver. There you go. <laughs> Either, yeah. right? Exactly. So there's all these little things in the book, like, I'll mispronounce stuff, but it doesn't matter because, you know, I understand the concepts of things. So you're talking about cooking with butter. Yeah. And then there's like, you're like, ghee. Like, there's this thing, ghee, that you yeah. talk about in the book, right? So and everyone else is listening is probably going, you don't know what ghee is? No, I didn't know what ghee was. So oh, wow. what, what is ghee and why are you so high on it? So ghee is a great fat so is butter and we can talk about the differences in the two they're they're yeah. similar ghee is derived from butter it's clarified butter essentially so okay. you take butter you boil it gently and then you skim off the milk solids and what you're left with is this pure fat that's very well tolerated for people that are even the most dairy sensitive because it's free of lactose and it's free of casein that's big for a lot of people okay. yeah it's great for high heat cooking it's a staple in um, indian cuisine that's the probably the, the type of cuisine most known for utilizing ghee but actually, butter and ghee, while I, I use it and I love it and I, you know, it's definitely a, a part of my diet, I talk in the book about how um, for certain people, uh, butter actually can raise um, levels of LDL, which mm -hmm. is the, the, mm -hmm. the lipoprotein associated with cardiovascular mm -hmm. disease, right? Um, and this is actually kind of interesting, and it's distinct from cream. Now, this is kind of mind-blowing. A lot of people don't realize this, but butter, butter is made from cream. Mm -hmm. And is it, you, you take cream, you churn it, you get butter. That churning process disrupts a compound in the cream called milk fat globule membrane. And it makes the butter more prone to driving up levels of LDL. Whoa. Whereas no other dairy product has that problem. Mm -hmm. So you can consume all the dairy fat you want from cream, from hard cheeses and things like that. The consumption of full fat dairy is actually associated with better cardiovascular health with the exception of butter, because it lacks this milk fat globule membrane. So for people that are worried about, you know, have risk of cardiovascular disease, butter is one of those foods that I'm like, yeah, enjoy it sometimes, you know, like mm -hmm. it's a, it tastes great. It's fairly nutrient dense for a fat, mm -hmm. but it's not one of these fats that I, that I'll go overboard with. Okay. Unlike extra virgin olive oil. What about salt? What's our, what's our, or do we have misconceptions about salt? In general, I, I know the answer because I'm reading <laughs> stuff, but I want to talk about that. So what, let's talk about salt. I love talking about salt. Salt is one of the easiest ways to elevate your cooking. I mean, salt, salt is the one ingredient that takes a single ingredient food, right? Like a piece of meat and turns it into a steak. Sure does. Right? You need yeah. salt. It's yeah. all you need. So I'm a huge fan of salt. And I think that, that we're- blows my mind hearing you say that. Okay. Yeah. Well, not anymore, but without reading, I, it would have blown my mind. It's, I mean, 
a piece of meat by itself is a missed opportunity, right? You got to right. add salt. And um, yeah, I, I think that we've been misguided when it comes to salt. A lot of, you know, the nutrition ortho orthodoxy will say, you got to limit your salt, cut out salt, stop adding salt to your food. But actually only 11% of the salt that Americans ingest every day comes from home cooking and the salt that they add with their salt shakers. The vast majority of sodium that your average American ingests every single day comes from fast food, restaurant food, and ultra-processed foods, canned, canned foods and things like that. So it's not the salt doing the damage, it's the fact that it's associated with those foods, or is it a different type of salt? No, it's the, it's the, it's the foods that, that... It's the, the associated salt, food attached the associated to the associated foods, yeah. Okay. About 25% of the population are sensitive to sodium, so they're what, is, they're what are called um, salt-sensitive hypertensives. Okay. And so that's still a minority, right? Okay. But about 25% of the population, if they eat a lot of salt, they'll see their uh, blood pressure go up by 5% or more. And that, um, that statistic or that proportion is higher among people who have hypertension already. But for the vast majority of people, they can eat all the salt that they want um, and, not see that and not see their blood pressure go up. If sodium is an issue, though, uh, and you are a salt-sensitive if you, if you do find yourself sensitive to salt, I still wouldn't say don't salt your food. I would say cut out the package processed foods, the fast food, and you can continue, of course, to add salt to your food to make it palatable because mm. even the healthiest foods in the supermarket aren't going to be tasty unless you add salt to them. So by us telling people to stop adding salt to their foods, and by the way, the number one source of salt in the American diet, the number one, isn't canned food. It isn't processed meats. It's bread and rolls. That's the number one so source of sodium in the American diet. Breads. Commercial breads. breads. Yeah. Do you eat bread? You know, I really don't. I, Your face um, just said you didn't. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I don't eat bread. I eat bread. I'll eat bread um, like, you know, like, a, like an almond flour-based bread. Because for me, you know, nut consumption is associated with good health. Nuts mm -hmm. are very, very nutrient-dense. Um, so if I can find like a good, like, quote-unquote paleo bread, yeah. you know, I'll go to town on that. You will. And look, if I'm traveling and... There's a really good like sourdough put in front of me. Like I'll, I'll try that occasionally, but for, it, bread is not a, a, a staple in my diet. That was my next question. So obviously I want people to get the book because they, and by the way, you should be cooking more. You should be home cooking more. And, but it, let's say you're not tonight. So to your point, I was going to ask you that. So I'm going out to order. I'm in a restaurant because a lot of people eat out or are going to eat out inevitably. What's just a good guide when eating out to eat for our brains, to eat for our heart, to eat for our longevity? but yet still enjoy the meal. Is there, is, do you have a guide you kind of give yourself when you do that? Yeah, I mean, and I want people to eat out. Like eating out is one of the great aspects of modern life, eating mm -hmm. out with friends. I, lo I love to eat out. Now, you can't control every single variable when you're eating out, and you mm -hmm. shouldn't try to, right? You mm -hmm. don't know what kinds of oils they're going to use in the restaurant. Yeah. Um, and so I think you need to give yourself a break, and you need to um, not try to control every variable. Control the controllables. And mm -hmm. I think when going out to a restaurant, the things that I look for, I base my meal around a protein. So whether that's a piece of steak. Now, I try to eat when I'm home 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef. When I'm out at a restaurant, yeah, I'll, I, I really appreciate if, if a restaurant offers that, but most restaurants don't. And so mm -hmm. I don't drive myself crazy. Mm -hmm. I know that even a piece of grain-fed uh, or grain-finished uh, beef, which is the most commonly available kind of beef mm -hmm. like in a restaurant, is going to be a pristine source of protein. And if you order something like a filet mignon, right, it's going mm -hmm. to be pricey, but a filet mignon is actually a lean piece of meat anyway. And right. so lean meat, lean beef, it doesn't really matter what the cow's fed, to be mm -hmm. honest, from a nutrition standpoint, because right. it's lean. What the cow eats dictates the, the, the nutritional quality of its fat. So if you're eating a lean piece of meat, like a filet, 
it actually doesn't matter what the cow's eaten from a nutritional standpoint. So I'll try to get a piece of beef. If, you know, if not that, I'll reach for some grilled salmon, which I know is probably going to be farmed, but it's all good. It's still a great source of omega-3s, okay. still a pristine source of protein. Chicken, chicken is great. White meat, dark meat, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Um, white meat is going to be just leaner, and so it's going to contain less calories, more protein. And then I try to get vegetables. So sautéed vegetables usually I steer away from because the veggies in restaurants, when they're sautéed, they tend to be sautéed in cheap oils, mm-hmm. um, restaurant oil, you know, like the mm-hmm. vegetable oil mm-hmm. or the canola oil or, or soybean or worse, or corn oil. So I'll try to get grilled veggies or steamed veggies, if that's an option, in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you could always like sprinkle some salt or some lemon. Uh, extra, you can ask for extra virgin olive oil. I love going to restaurants and asking if they can bring out flake salt, which is yeah. way better than the table shaker salt. Yes. Um, I've done that too. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's really easy to, like, to, to manipulate those variables in the restaurant. Focus on protein. Order a piece of, of meat or fish or chicken or what have you. And then veggies, a side of veggies, a salad. That's, I mean, those are the meals that I get generally, and, and I find it pretty easy to do so, like, okay. no matter where I am. So I'm eating, I'm going to ask you heart and brain. Yeah. I'm eating for my brain. Give me uh, one or two foods, eat for your brain. Do this, people. And then here's one or two foods to avoid for your brain. All right. Love this. <clears throat> so I would say avocados are an amazing brain food. Mm-hmm. They have the highest concentration of fat-protecting antioxidants of any fruit or vegetable. And this is of particular relevance to the brain because the brain is made of fat. And not yep. just any kind of fat, but like a really delicate, damage-prone category of fats called polyunsaturated fats. The brain is constructed of these fats. And so fat-soluble antioxidants are crucial to uh, aging well, cognitively speaking. Avocado is a great source of potassium, which we know helps balance out the effect of sodium on our blood pressure. It, they're a rich source of carotenoids, which can boost um, visual processing speed, even in people who are young and healthy. Uh, great source of fiber, very satiating. So avocados are an amazing brain food. I would say the second food, um, we've already talked about, about beef a little bit. Um, we haven't yet really talked about eggs. I'm a huge fan of eggs. Good. I eat a lot of eggs. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Eggs are great. Eggs, you know, when you consider the fact that an egg yolk is packaged with everything that nature has deemed important to grow a brain, it literally is the ultimate cognitive multivitamin, an egg yolk. Okay. Yeah. Good. So I, I love egg yolks. And also, um, there was a study in older people that found that choline consumption was associated with okay. uh, re- slashed risk of developing dementia by 30%. Mm. which is, you know, there's no drug on the market that we could say, here, take this. 30%. Risk of dementia by 30%. But choline um, is a really uh, important um, molecule. It serves as the backbone to acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter that's important for learning and memory. Eggs are the number one source of dietary Mm. choline. You get, I think, like 150 milligrams Mm. um, in just one single egg yolk, which is amazing. Okay, uh, avoid food for the brain. Processed food, anything beyond that? I would say um, definitely the grain and seed oils, uh, canola yeah. oil, corn oil, soybean oil. We know that these fats integrate themselves into our, into our adipose tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, we've actually seen an increase by about 136% of the appearance of these fats, linoleic acid in, part- in particular, in adipose tissue um, over the past 100 years, mm-hmm. which, is just, uh, which is owed to the fact that we're just we're chronically consuming mm-hmm. these cheap oils, something like soybean oil by itself is our consumption of it has gone up 2000% okay just in the past 100 years alone 
That's a big part of the book, by the way, is the preparation part, and I'm, I want them to get the preparation part, but that's a big deal as if it's got corn oil preparation. That's just a big no-no, huh? Yeah, you want to get rid of that stuff. I mean, a little bit here and there certainly won't kill you, but the production of these oils creates trans fats. There's no mm -hmm. safe level of trans fat consumption we know at this point. They're also full, especially when um, we cook with them under real-world conditions, the appearance of of oxidative byproducts, certain aldehydes and things like that, which we know are damaging to our mitochondria, which is, mm -hmm. you know, the organelles in our cells that create energy. Um, and these, these oxidative products are found under, and they're found in oils that are available commercially and created under just everyday use. So. Okay. And what about heart? Anything you say this heart, eat this for your heart. From a cardiovascular standpoint, yeah. yeah, I mean, extra virgin olive oil, I think, really important. Fish, wild fatty fish, is great from a cardiovascular standpoint. Exercise is important. It's not food, but um, you know, it's. And I, and I think the fiber part is heart related too. If you yeah. are really truly, you know, if it does have some LDL reduction capacity in any way, any of the particles, then fiber's a big deal. Yeah, it does. I mean, basically, what happens is you you release bile acids to help break down fats in the mm -hmm. gut, um, and bile acids we we use LDL particles mm -hmm. to make bile acids. And those part of the, that LDL is basically taken back up in the ileum, which is the latter end of the digestive tract. But when you consume fiber with your food, and especially this, this gel-forming viscous fiber, psyllium husk, um, and, other, and other fibers naturally found in foods, it traps the LDL particles, that, and so they're not able to be taken back up in the ileum um, in time. Mm. So you basically pass them. Okay. That's why fiber, I think, is is so great from a it yanks from it, a you heart. pass it. Yeah, you're brilliant, by the way, dude. Thank you. I, 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 th I feel didn't... the same way about you. Thank you. I told you this like five times last time that it's, we talked, but I just mutual. when I'm talking with you, and thank you, I appreciate that. Fruit. So Fruit. here we go. Yeah. So, you know, I get my info from different people, <laughs> and so I'm curious because I have some friends of mine that say, listen. Fruits like ingesting sugar in the body. The body doesn't know the difference. I'm going to ask you whether this is true or not. The body doesn't know the yeah. difference, so you're going to get some sort of insulin reaction to it. Then you're going to get more inflammation. And so fruit equals yeast and equals inflammation. I have other friends who say, nope, fruit's got all this nutritional benefit to it. Uh, it's also got some water benefit to it in many cases. And so I eat a ton of fruit. So where do you stand on those fruit. two ends of the spectrum? I think fruit is great, especially whole fruit. Um, but I do think it's important to make to bring nuance to the table and to acknowledge that there are different kinds of fruits. You know, we have low sugar fruits like avocados, berries. Um, all berries are great. Cucumbers, citrus, things like that. And then we have high sugar tropical fruits like, you know, bananas, for example, or pineapple, mangoes. If you are, if you have problems with your glucose tolerance and you're sedentary all day, do I think gorging on grapes and bananas, for example, is yeah. a very, is a very smart idea? Mm -hmm. No, I mean it's it's prob it's it's better than gorging on on junk food, but I think we could do even better than that. Okay, I think we can inject, you know, look to foods that have less to have a lower glycemic load. Um, okay, but at the end of the day, fruit is beneficial, and so I don't want to I don't want to scare anybody away from from eating more whole fruit. I personally, you know, my fruit, my daily fruit consumption ranges from zero to two servings a day. Okay. Um, and again, all fruits are different. So berries, you know, there's a lot of evidence now showing how berries, how supportive berries are to brain health. Right. Um, you know, bananas are a great source of pot potassium, which can boost cardiovascular health, but are bananas the only source of potassium? No, actually an avocado has twice the potassium of a banana. Okay. With, uh, with all those other benefits, you know, to it that I, that I mentioned. And as you mentioned, fruit 
it's self-limiting. So again, this is why I don't really, you know, place a limit on, on fruit consumption. It is self-limiting because of the fiber, because of the water. And the fact that fruit comes with that, the fiber and the water, that is important from the standpoint of how the sugar in the fruit affects us physiologically. Mm. So there was actually a really interesting study where um, this wasn't a fruit per se, but they compared the same amount of carbohydrates from wheat. So they, they took 50 grams, we'll just say 50 grams of wheat, um, and they turned it into a porridge. And one porridge, the wheat, in one, part, one version of the porridge, the wheat was coarsely ground. And in the other, it was much more finely ground. And the finely ground porridge, again, carbohydrate, carbohydrates were controlled for. So the calories were controlled for, right? So same amount of carbohydrates in each bolus, the finely ground wheat porridge and the coarsely ground wheat porridge. And what they found in the finely ground wheat porridge was that it sent blood sugar, the, the amount, the, the, the glycemic impact was way higher, which led to a way higher release of insulin. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, so it sent, the blo- it sent the blood sugar way higher in the subjects, but then what was really interesting was that it dropped it below baseline. Um, afterwards, whereas the, yeah, so it led to a, it led to a blood sugar crash Crash. that Mm. blood sugar crash that we all try to avoid, right? Because that can Mm. create feelings of anxiety and people Mm. prone to anxiety, fatigue, fatigue, hunger, irritability, Mm. right? But the coarsely ground porridge is harder for our bodies to digest, right? Um, and, and it digests more slowly, return blood sugar right back to baseline, right? Mm. So going back to the fruit conversation, this is why I think fruit is so great and not something that we ultimately need to worry about, right? Because, because, our, because it's not like we're just juicing the fruit and consuming that sugar. It has this whole food matrix of fiber and water, okay. and, it really, and it leads to a very slow infusion of sugar. Whereas, you know, you can take the same amount of sugar found in an apple and drink it, and you're not going to have the same effect. You're probably going to see a, a blood sugar crash. That's one of my favorite things we've talked about so far right there. Because that's a, a definitive example of the difference of that and just ingesting typical sugar on its own. Yeah. Which is sort of one of the arguments against fruit. I'm not advocating fruit any more or less than you are. I wouldn't advocate anything because it's not my background. But what about just eating less? So I'm talk- I want you to address a couple different things. By the way, I really appreciate you going so deep because, you know, this is really valuable to me. I care about the, these folks that are my family listening to this and watching this and their well-being. I want them to live happier, stronger, more energized lives. And you really help people do that, bro. So what about less? And when I say less, as I mean less often, hmm. meaning how do you feel about, you know, um, feeding windows? Um, my, my cardiologist doesn't like to call it intermittent fasting. She likes to call them feeding windows. Actually, David Sinclair did as well. Hmm. And then just portion size in general. Is that something you're cognizant of, like how much food you're putting in your body, actually? Not just calories, but just amount of food and portion size and how often you do or don't eat. Are those things that you think about or focus on? Yeah, I mean, I try not to eat for two to three hours before I go to sleep every night. Okay. That's my primary um primary concern is not eating too close to bedtime. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I like to eat, you know, an hour after I wake up. Sometimes I'm not hungry at all and I can go two, three hours after waking up mm-hmm. before taking my first bite. But this all comes back to circadian biology. And, you know, we're seeing now that, especially with research on time-restricted eating, um, a lot of this research is being done by, down over at uh, the Salk Institute with Sachin Panda. He's done a lot of, a lot of, Really published a lot of really interesting papers on time-restricted eating, but that when we simply honor our body's natural inclination to eat during the day and not eat too much late at night, 
we see cardiometabolic benefits to our blood pressure, to our blood glucose control, and this is independent of weight. So Mm -hmm. some will argue that time-restricted eating merely just a way of controlling calories. And it is that. It can, sure. be, a, it can be a very effective way of controlling calories. It's not, you know, time-restricted eating doesn't give you a free ride to eat whatever it is that you want. You can still gain weight while sure. time-restricted eating. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of people um, make the mistake of thinking that time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting is this hall pass to, yeah. you know, to eat whatever it is that you want and that somehow calories don't matter right. if you're time-restricted eating. That's false, right? But Independent of calories, it does seem to be the case that there is a, a cardiometabolic benefit to not eating too late at night. And so that's what I try to do. You know, mm. we, we see that people who eat late at night, their hunger patterns are, you know, miswired the next mm. day. Um, and I've seen, I've anecdotally experienced this myself. When I eat really late at night, my digestion isn't, all, isn't great the next day. And I tend to feel more hungry when I wake up the following day. Mm. Well, for me, I sleep a lot better. Yeah. Because digest, my body's working to digest food that I eat later at night. And so when I'm not necessarily in full digestion mode, so to speak, I just sleep deeper. But the reason I ask you about portion size, I want to talk about this, maybe one of the last two things here, is that as you talked earlier about how big these sodas are now, so are portions. Like you go to, when you do eat out, the portions seem to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You go to an average restaurant now, you're like, my gosh, the amount of food in yeah. some places that they're bringing me. And there's been this thing, like I grew up with this, like, Clean your plate. Yeah. It was a big thing. I, I, I'm, here I am 50 years old, but I would sit at a, a lot of us grew up like this. I wasn't even allowed to leave the table if I didn't eat all the food. Mom, I know you're listening to this. I love you. <laughs> but like, but like there is a portion issue in our culture. And I do think people think, well, I haven't eaten in eight hours, so I'm going to eat three sizes, fistfuls of steak because I haven't eaten any in 10 hours. So what about portion size? Do you focus on that? Yeah. I mean... I see. I, I personally am a volume eater. I like to eat a lot. You I told like me to, that last time. Yeah, yeah. I, li- I like to eat a lot, and and I think that the way that that has become something sustainable for me, and you know, and I'm able to do that um, without having to think about calories and to and to mm-hmm. portion control all that much is to focus really on the foods that I know are going to be satiating, so that I can feel full, but still not have overconsumed my my uh, daily calorie needs. And the way to do that is to focus really on, on whole, minimally processed foods. So you can eat a lot. You can eat a, a huge volume of food mm-hmm. and, and not consume, at the end of the day, all that many calories in doing so. I mean, that's the problem with ultra-processed foods is that by the time you've eaten those kinds of foods to satiety, you've already over-consumed them. Yes. These are the foods like pastas and rolls and mm-hmm. breads and cakes and fried foods and um, chicken dishes like you know, lasagnas and things like yeah. that. But it's the, it's the minimally <clears throat> processed foods that allow you to feel like you're eating a lot, mm. when in reality, you're actually not eating that much because they're just, they're just that satiating. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I've done on my Instagram too, like side-by-side depictions where, you know, if you look at the calorie density of your average fast food meal. This is really good right here, you guys. I've yeah. seen you do this. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. like the, the, the French fries and mm-hmm. the soda and the Big Mac. It fits within, like, I mean, you can... You can basically, in two handfuls, hold all of that food in, in two hands. And that's, for the most part, it's like 1,500 calories worth of food right there. Yeah. And it's just you're holding it in two hands, right? But if you look at foods like, you know, wild salmon, uh, fresh vegetables, dark leafy greens, whole fruits, um, eggs, and stuff like that, the calorie density is way lower for those calorie foods. Calorie density. There you go. Yeah. The mm. calorie density is lower, um, but the, the volume is way higher. 
Okay. And so volume is one of those things that like, you know, it's really hard from the standpoint, like look at, look at like any animal, like when left to their own devices, when allowed to eat ad libitum, which, which is a scientific way of saying to, to allow an animal to eat all that, you know, everything that they want. They don't stop. They don't pump the brakes. They have no self, they have no uh, mm. reason to self-regulate the mm. way that we do, right? Mm. But when an animal is eating its biologically appropriate diet, it knows when to stop naturally right yeah. an animal's an, an animal's mo isn't to eat itself to a state of, of type 2 diabetes and obesity right very true so i think that the reason why so many of us struggle with overeating is because of the it's the food environment it's yeah. not that there's anything wrong with us i think a lot of people feel like there's like a moral failure right when they can't regulate their appetites when mm -hmm. they just find themselves eating too much chronically but it's the foods it's the ultra processed junk foods it's, and it's not even junk foods it's the it's food, it's fast food, it's sugar-sweetened beverages, and it's not even just food, to be honest. It's, it's our lifestyles. You know, when you are underslept, the next day you're inclined to eat 400 more calories than if you were well-slept. So it's, it's all wow, these factors. Yeah, yeah. All these factors come into play. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that, like, moderating and trying to, like, shrink your portion size is one of the reasons why diets fail again and again. Because you can't just shrink your portion size and expect that to be a sustainable thing for you. People want to be able to eat and feel full. By the way, that, what you just said, by, for those of you that have some guilt about not eating healthy, ask yourself about your satiation level when you're eating, right? You're, I'm just going through things you've said today. The amount of fiber intake so that you're feeling more full also. Your water intake so that you're feeling more full. And just give yourself some a break about that. Maybe it's not the amount of food you're eating, but the types of foods you're eating so that you feel fuller sooner. The other little thing I thought about, I'd eat fast. Mm. I eat too fast. You said this earlier. It's, just, it's one of my takeaways for our conversation today. So one, I'm losing the benefit of some of that combination of circumstances that causes these healthy toxins in my body when I'm eating, but also the fact that it's not even giving myself time to signal the fact that I'm full yeah. oftentimes. I'm just, I'm, I do everything fast. I talk fast. I drive fast. I walk fast. And I think sometimes our personality dictates even the way we eat. And I think it's smart to step back and go, let me enjoy the flavor of the food. Let me enjoy the meal to some extent. Let me enjoy the conversation. It's not a, I think sometimes I'm always in a contest to be first. Mm. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. I gotta be the first one finished, first one to order, first one finished, for, which is not just insanely stupid thing. But yet I do it when I eat. And I think when I overeat or when I have digestion issues or fatigue after a meal, oftentimes it's not the food I ate. Sometimes for me, it's just how fast I ate it yeah. in some cases. And so I really appreciate you saying, okay, last question. Oh, man. Well, there's so many more. I've got 3,000 more questions I wanted to get to, but, you know, the depth of your answers are so awesome, bro. I, I love talking I, to you. This I love talking to you, and I want to keep doing it. By the way, guys, I just say this about Max. There's not someone else like him. So follow his stuff. Check out his YouTube. Listen to his podcast. Get Genius Food. Get the book. You know, get it. So just an in-general question. We've covered a whole bunch of stuff today. I just want to, we missed something. We missed a lot of things. But if someone's listening, they go, you know what, man? I'm going to start to pay more attention to how I'm eating, what I'm eating, how I'm eating. Other than what we've covered here today, what would be one more layered thing you'd say? And by the way, don't forget this, either in preparation or the type of food or anything like that that you would throw in that I didn't ask you that they should just know before I, I let you go. Oh, man. Well, I, a topic that, I, that I'm really passionate about is um, our, our almost constant exposure to environmental toxins, so industrially created compounds that have saturated the food supply that we are unwittingly ingesting on a day-to-day -day basis that are co that's compromising our health. 
Mm. So compounds like bisphenol A or BPA, endocrine disruptors, mm. like phthalates in our food supply or PFAS chemicals. Mm. I would say that, you know, getting your food right is super important and probably going to be the lowest hanging fruit for most people. But mm. I also think that people should start to at least gain a sense of awareness about where their food is coming from mm. and to reduce their reliance on foods that come in plastic packages yeah. and to minimize their uh, storing of food in plastic packages and certainly the reheating of food in plastic packages. So this is a big problem, like the microwaving of food in plastics, mm-hmm. purchasing of sandwiches and, and other food products in oil-proof paper, wrapped in oil-proof paper. Yeah. All of these um, situations increase our exposure to compounds that mess with our hormones, mm. the, the system of, of chemicals in our body that guide everything from neurodevelopment to sexual function mm. to you know, where we store our body fat. Mm. So being, becoming aware of where your food is coming from. I mean, there's a study that came out uh, just, I think it was late 2021, that found that fast food was just rife with phthalates. Phthalates are known endocrine disruptors. Mm. And so if you're eating a food product that, just try to visualize where, you know, how it arrived in your hands. If it had to flow through a Byzantine network of plastic tubing, mm. right? to make it into your food supply, to make it into, in, onto your plate, then it's probably something that you should minimize your consumption of. <laughs> if it's a piece of, you know, and com- just compare it to a, a sliced piece of fresh meat or a mm. whole chicken that you roast yourself, for mm. example, it's a lot different. Or, you know, produce that you grab from the supermarket and put in a bag yourself. I mean, that's, that's completely different. But, you know, so many of us today, we're consuming foods in packaging, and we think that the packaging is inert, but it's actually not. Under certain circumstances, the chemical constituents of the packaging are able to leach into the food that wow. we're eating. And it screws with us. It affects everything from insulin sensitivity to our predilection for weight gain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah. And I, and I offer some tips in Genius Kitchen to help minimize um, one's exposure to these kinds of toxic chemicals, which I think is a, is a really important layer that we need to be talking about more. Okay. So uh, I'm really glad I asked you that last. And by the way, it's a genius kitchen. I keep calling it genius food a couple times. At the beginning, I called it genius kitchen. There's genius foods in the book, genius kitchen. And Max is one of a kind, you guys. I'm uh, grateful for today. Likewise. Really grateful for today. I was so looking forward to this. Same. Yeah, I really was, brother. And uh, you knocked it out of the park once again. So, guys, go get Genius Kitchen. Follow Max everywhere. We'll put some links up here so that you can get it. If you're on the YouTube, you'll see them here on the audio. You guys already know about Max Lugavere. Go follow all of his stuff. And in our ca- the show case of our show, I got to tell you guys, we've doubled in the last 90 days already a huge behemoth of a show. And that's because you guys are all sharing it. It's because every week I bring you somebody who is the best in the world at what they do. And this week's show was no exception. And so please share this with people that you care about, that you love, and help the message of the show continue to grow. I love all of you. God bless you all. And max out your life. This is The Ed Milet Show.